Hello and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo, and I am thrilled, absolutely thrilled this week to be doing one of my very, very favorite films. A film I think is a perfect film. I define a perfect film as a film that accomplishes exactly what it sets out to do, does not make a misstep, contains no extraneous scenes or false notes. Jackie Brown, Quentin Tarantino's third film, to me, is such a film. It's a film I remember seeing in the theater, and from the very first sound and image on the screen, which is Pam Greer as Jackie Brown, on the LAX People Mover, with the incredible Bobby Womack song, Across 110th Street, playing... I was sold. I just knew right away that you were in confident hands. This Bobby Womack song, by the way, I'm half tempted to do an entire episode about this I was the third brother of five incredible song doing whatever I had to do to survive I'm not saying what I did was all right listen to this groove trying to break out of the ghetto was a day-to-day fight listen to Bobby Womack's voice didn't cross my mind but I knew there was a better way of life and I was just trying to find you don't know what you do till you put under pressure. Cross 110th Street is a hell of a tester. Across it's just, <laughs> this is just an incredible song that contains multitudes. Bobby Womack himself was the third brother of five and has a life story that is like a fictionalized film. I, I may have to get into it. I may have to do it later because... It's so incredible. Now, what's fascinating about the song in relation to the film to me is, again, I mentioned the confidence of the filmmaking. That's what's remarkable. If you look at this soundtrack, none of these songs specifically have anything to do with the Los Angeles, the South Bay of Los Angeles environment that we're talking about in the setting of the film right? Across 110th Street, you can't get more New York than that. Right there in the title. Yet, why is it perfect for the ethos and the vibe of Jackie Brown, the film? It is. It's a song about the pressures that come into play in the lives of predominantly African-American people living in communities threatened on all sides, from within, externally. And when Bobby Womack turns the corner in the song about halfway through, and he starts telling people there's a better way, it's incredible. And this song and so many of the other songs, which 
really come from more of a Philly soul moment in music history rather than any kind of a Los Angeles moment. That's the confidence. It's the, con like, you can imagine after the fact, someone going like, well, should we really start the movie Jackie Brown, which is going to be such a Los Angeles film? Should we really start that with such an identifiably New York City reference? <laughs> Tarantino doesn't care because he knows it's exactly what he's after. And that's what's incredible about this film. This is a little tangential, but I was listening, as I often do, to a Bob Lefsetz podcast. And Lefsetz always has a question he asks a lot of his guests, which is, what kind of child were you? Were you popular? Were you uh, a good student? And it's funny, you know, when do any of us ever get to ask ourselves these questions? And having just finished reading uh, the book Rum Punch by Elmore Leonard, which is the basis for the film Jackie Brown, as adapted by Quentin Tarantino, I made a bizarre connection here, which I don't even know if it exists, but for me it does, which is I've always loved the work of Elmore Leonard, probably my favorite crime writer. I hate to even use that genre discrediting because I don't really agree with that. But really, if I had to pick two to read forever, I would pick John le Carre and Elmore Leonard. Now, what do their protagonists have in common? Their characters, even. But it occurred to me that in my childhood, due to the circumstances such as they were, no better or no worse than anyone else, but I never had the opportunity to ask myself that question as a kid. I didn't get to find that out until later in life, when I was in my teenage years and I was kind of old enough to define myself for myself. And, you know, you make all the missteps that you make in those early attempts at self-definition, but, you know, we moved around a lot, a couple of divorces. So anyway, what's the connection to Elmore Leonard? Well, it occurs to me that his characters, and certainly the main characters of Jackie Brown, have something in common with that sense of disconnection, that sense of not finding themselves yet even into adulthood. As Jackie Brown poignantly says, I'm 44 years old. If I've got to start over, I'm starting from nothing. And the same thing with John le Carré. John le Carré protagonists all have one thing in common, which John le Carré had in common with his protagonists, which is a charismatic ultimately failed father figure. And the fuel that drives the Le Carre characters is the tension of this relationship or lack thereof with the father. And as I watched Jackie Brown innumerable times to prep for this episode, I started really thinking about these people as real people. I mean, the acting in this movie is so good and so nuanced that you can really start to speculate in a way that I don't think I really do with many other films as to the backstories here that we're not really necessarily getting. You do get some backstory information, but man, whew, how many of these people did not win Academy Awards is crazy as it always is. 
Samuel L. Jackson, first and foremost. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Or Del Robbie? Watch the movie. Tell me there's a better film performance. Like a performance in a movie. An indelible, unforgettable character that you haven't seen before. Because you've never seen a character like that on the film. You never. And that's not even getting to Pam Greer and Robert Forrester and, and De Niro, all of whom were deserving. I think Pam Greer got a nomination. Anyway, I connected with that. Um, a lot of the characters in Jackie Brown have a failure to launch. Jackie and Max are struggling with lives that are really being lived in a middle gear. They're just kind of coasting. Ordell is on a path that he kind of overconfidently just will wills into his own destruction. A lot of these things are, are just apparent. I mean, the confidence of the filmmaking from the very first shot, which is this very long shot of Pam Greer on the people mover at LAX over a long and protracted chunk of the great Bobby Womax across 110th Street. And it's all there, but not yet. You have to watch the film to really understand that sequence, which is brilliant. Now, the film's title design is one of many shout outs to the black exploitation films of the Pam Greer era that Tarantino is a fan of, is an expert in, and is in large part doing an homage to in this film. The film's title design is the same as Foxy Brown, probably her most favorite, I mean, famous film. And while you don't know the first time you see this film, what exactly it is and it's going to be, you do somehow feel that this film has the confidence to be itself, to be wholly itself. It's perfectly adapted from the source material. It's perfectly played, paced, filmed, and edited by the late, great Sally Menkes. Now, the adaptation is interesting because the book, Rum Punch, doesn't take place in Los Angeles at all. It takes place in Miami, Florida. Jackie Burke, the protagonist of Rum Punch, has all the characteristics and all the same plot motivations as Pam Greer does in Jackie Brown, but she's a white middle-aged woman. And Tarantino in the making of features talks about how when he and his then producing partner um, got the rights to three Elmore Leonard books, really, I think right after he did Reservoir Dogs, you know, he thought he was going to do another book first. He wasn't going to do Jackie Brown. And then I guess he was getting prepared to give Jackie, uh, to give Rum Punch to another director. And so he read the book again in a night and he was like, no, no, I got to do this. But he changed some of these key things to, to relocate it to Los Angeles, to have Jackie Brown be a, 44-year-old black woman. And he didn't tell Elmore, Elmore Leonard this until, I guess, just before filming began because he was afraid that, you know, 
Elmore wouldn't approve, which of course he did. He said, not only do I think this is the best, he's talking about the screenplay, do I think this is the best adaptation of my books ever done? And I think at that point there had been 26 filmic adaptations or something crazy, but I think this is the best screenplay I've ever read. So he was all for it. And when you listen to Elmore Leonard talk about how enthusiastic he was for this whole thing to happen, you can really get a master class in how an author should approach the prospect of a filmmaker turning one of their books into a movie. He's fully aware and self-confidently possessed of the idea that the book remains the book. It remains his. That does not change. If someone does something great with the movie, great. That's something else. And I think to Tarantino's credit, much like I would say Kubrick with Stephen King, another quote-unquote genre author, whose source material a director rewrote and extracted the things that spoke to him the most. And in doing so, I think made pretty inarguably the greatest horror movie of all time, probably the only horror movie that truly amounts to great art and great cinematic art and is possessed of tremendous acting performances and bravura directing of a caliber far, far beyond what the genre, again, in quotes, usually encapsulates. And you could say the same thing of Elmore Leonard's novels or John le Carré's novels. Oh, it's a spy novel. Oh, it's an Elmore Leonard novel. It's a crime novel. Well, yeah, but it's writing. It's plot, it's character, it's tone, and it's attitude. And in this movie, Jackie Brown, you have the perfect mix between those two things, the Elmore Leonard source material and the Quentin Tarantino lived experience of his youth going to movies in a largely black neighborhood and seeing double features of black exploitation films and appreciating them, not ironically. You know, he says in one of the making of things that people always say, oh, you know, your thing is you find these actors on the scrap heap. You take Travolta and you put him in a movie and you make him a star again. You take Robert Forster and you put him in a movie and he make, you make him a star again. He says, no, nothing could be further from the truth. It's not like he's going around thinking like, hmm, whose career can I revive? He's actually a fan of these actors. And when he has a part, and not before, I might add, you know, many, many times you can hear people like Pam Greer and Robert Forster talk about how they auditioned for Tarantino going as far back as Reservoir Dogs, his first film. Robert Forster auditioned for the, uh, the um, Lawrence Tiernan role. But Tarantino said, yeah, it's not quite right. You're not quite right for this, but it's, but Trust me, we're going to work together. Think about that. Think about making your first movie and having the confidence to think, A, that there's going to be subsequent films and the ability to know that this isn't really the role. Like you want to expend all this capital. Like, oh my God, I could get someone who, who medium cool. I'm a huge medium cool fan. I get to work with that guy. I have arrived. 
but he waits. Same thing with Pam Greer. There's a bit where Tarantino says his shtick is, I treat movie stars like actors, and I treat actors like movie stars. And if you think about it in this film, that's really what happens. Who are the movie stars in this movie? Well, they're Robert De Niro, Michael Keaton. Is Samuel Jackson a movie star at this time? I guess he is. But certainly De Niro and Keaton are quote unquote movie stars at this point in time that the film is being made, which is 97, I think. Yet they are supporting actors in this and they're great. They get to be actors. They don't have to be quote unquote movie stars. And that's one of the great secrets of Jackie Brown. Now, Samuel L. Jackson and Robert Forster have such great chemistry, prickly chemistry. A lot of times in movies, you talk about like characters having great chemistry and you mean that it's either romantic chemistry or comedic chemistry. What's great about Max and Ordell and Jackie Brown is their relationship is so prickly. Uh, The first scene where they meet when... Ordell is waiting in the bail bonds office and he's looking at the photos on Max Cherry's wall and it has a picture of of Max with his associate who's played by Tiny Lister. And Ordell so, so smartly zeroes in on the fact quickly he's like oh but but you're the boss though. He's like who is that guy? He works here. Yeah, he he's my, he works here. Oh yeah, but you the boss, right? Yes, and I bet it was your idea to take the picture. You know, it's that kind of genius that Tarantino has into the white psyche, the white tendency to associate itself with blackness as a badge of subtle honor up there on the wall. Ordell diagnoses that instantaneously and calls it out. There's another hilarious... I feel bad for Max Cherry twice in this film. I don't know why Tarantino does this. I would love to ask him one day. <laughs> it's just so funny how it, that he does this. But the second time that Ordell meets Max, <laughs> Max does is, is given basically an all-in-the-family toilet flush entrance, okay? He's coming out of the can. Now, it would be enough if he was just coming out of the can and... You could think, oh, well, you know, maybe he was just taking a leak, but no, he has like a folded up newspaper. So clearly he's doing number two and Ordell goes, uh, 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 I didn't hear you wash your hands, which he didn't. It's so brilliant, right? It's so brilliant. And then again, at the end of the movie, when Jackie comes back to the bail bonds office, again, Max Cherry comes out of the bathroom with, I don't even know if there's a flush. I think there's not a flush. I hope there's not a flush. But why, Quentin? I mean, it makes Max the sort of humble, doesn't care about appearances guy. I guess that he is. But it's just a hilarious. It's like, to me, Max coming out of the can with the flush sound effect is like the Meerschaum pipe in Christopher Waltz's hands at the end of that otherwise astonishingly brilliant scene 
um, in what the hell's the movie? You know the one I'm talking about. The Nazi hunter. Uh, Jesus, what's it called? Inglorious Bastards. Right, that scene is so brilliant all the way through. The tension is incredible. The filmmaking is incredible. And then Christopher Waltz pulls out this ridiculous pipe, which is so Tarantino. Anyway. Um, there's so much great filmmaking in this. It was the, the first Tarantino movie. I had to have this said to me in one of the featurettes that, you know, I guess a knock on Tarantino is how talky the films are. That's like, no, it's just these long scenes of talking. It never even really occurred to me. I just sort of always bought into the thing that was going on in a Tarantino film. Not all the time, by the way. You know, like this is my favorite Tarantino film. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is also my favorite Tarantino film, but I've loved Jackie Brown since 1997. My love affair with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is only a couple of years old. Let's see how it plays out over the next 20 years. But once I heard that, I kind of got it in my head and I realized that is a lot of what's going on in these long scenes of conversational dialogue. But there's so much great filmmaking. Here's a small example. The great cameo by Chris Tucker as Ordell drives away, there's a song playing on the sound, what, what feels like a song playing on the soundtrack as Ordell puts his, uh, he gets a handgun out of the glove box of the car that he's just locked Chris Tucker's character, Beaumont, in the trunk. And the song that's playing on the soundtrack is what, we think is a soundtrack placement. But when he drives off down the road, the song drives away with him and it goes away. And then the camera just moves to the left and picks up opposite the street that we're on and over a fence, a, a vacant dirt lot. And as we sit there for a few seconds wondering why we're looking at this vacant dirt lot, Ordell's car reappears in the far distance. And as it does, the song comes back on the soundtrack. And as Ordell parks, he gets out, he opens the trunk, and Chris Tucker's voice brilliantly just complains and then is snuffed out by two quick gunshots. That's some great filmmaking. And I think it's so many different movies in one, but... The heart, and this movie has a lot of heart. And I think that's why I had to be reminded that people had a weird reaction to this when it came out. There's a hilar unintentionally hilarious roundtable of film critics on the DVD, on the iTunes extras. And one of the critics is kind of honest and says, you know, hey, I was one of those guys who was so into Pulp Fiction that when this came out after Pulp Fiction... I was like, what is this? Didn't have any of that kinetic craziness and energy. But what it has in spades is heart. This is a romantic movie. This is a deftly handled friendship movie. But at its heart, it's Quentin's love letter to Robert Forster and Pam Greer. 
First and foremost, I think that's what it is. He's giving them a chance to do something they didn't really always get a chance to do during their career heyday. And think about who else would do that at that moment of their maximum clout. (laughs) No, what I'm going to do next is this. I mean, it's crazy and brilliant. Uh, It's also Samuel L. Jackson's tour de force movie. I mean, you could watch this movie as I have over and over again and key in at each viewing on one of these on one of these characters and it's rewarding to follow all of their scenes but Samuel L. Jackson in Jackie Brown wow it's so towering a film performance it's incredible um it is so specifically nuanced it has all of the great stuff that's contained in the character in the Elmore Leonard novel, but it also has all the brilliant stuff that Samuel L. Jackson came up with for the character. The way that Ordell is not your average Compton, gang-banging, stereotypical black criminal. I mean, the ponytail, the chin rat tail, um... The man purse, the Johnny Cash. <laughs> he listens to Johnny Cash. Um, he's so out of time, but he's so of this place and in this movie. It's an incredible, incredible film performance. I mean, it's also De Niro and Bridget Fonda, like perfectly pitched beach stoner Elmore Leonard characters. You know, when I do an episode, I often think about like, well, what clips can I play to illustrate the genius of the film in various places? Now, it's difficult, to be honest with you, to play some of the Samuel Jackson clips in the context of a podcast because of the language. And I know Tarantino has gotten a lot of grief for that. And he's had actors like Samuel L. Jackson defend his writing in that regard. So I'm not going to play those clips per se here. But when I thought about playing De Niro clips, you can't even, I could play them, but it's not going to at all indicate the genius of the performance because it is totally physical. His choice of mumbling and and confusion is so hard to describe using words, but hands down one of my favorite Robert De Niro performances because it's just so different than anything he ever gets to do. It's all of those movies. It's also the soundtracks movie. Across 110th Street, Street Life, Holy hell. How great a song is that? I gotta play a little Street Life. I played the Street Life. 
so great. And also so the spirit of this film, right? And <laughs> I mean, does it surprise you that the use of this song is a reference that Tarantino is making to Burt Reynolds, <laughs> who let's not forget was supposed to play a part in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that Bruce Dern ended up playing because Burt Reynolds died. I guess it's used in Sharky's Machine, which I do want to rewatch. Um, that's his callback there. I mean, the, over and over again on the soundtrack, there's just so many insane songs. It's probably one of the best film soundtracks ever assembled. You know, I talked about uh, scores. This is the opposite of a score because this is a selection of songs that are used to convey emotion, but also the vibe. It's just vibe. It like these are songs that fit what's going on on screen. Also, it's the I said South Bay. I was wrong. It's the East Bay of Los Angeles's movie. Okay, do we just talk about this? In last week's episode about To Live and Die in L.A. and the great documentary Los Angeles Plays Itself, well, Jackie Brown is featured really prominently in that documentary because it's the same location. This Hawthorne, um, these, these, these districts in the East Bay. It's not the LA of Hollywood and glamour and effortless living. This is hard scrabble Los Angeles where you have Muzak in the Del Almo Fashion Center Mall and you have low-level bad guys fighting over pretty tiny little fiefdoms, okay? But the locations are so important and so felt by Tarantino that it's one of the great, great pleasures of the film and, you know, one of the great things about films is that they capture moments in time, be it people, places, or things. And I think one of them that's so brilliantly used is the Cockatoo Inn, which is where Jackie takes Ordell. And he's like, whoa, I got to come back to this place. Like, he's blown away. Um, it's got its own great history. I looked this up and had a really fun time reading the Wikipedia page. It was actually founded by a mafia uh, member in 1958 named Andrew Lococo. And it quickly became popular, even though it was in Hawthorne, the unsexy location of Hawthorne, California. Guests included John F. Kennedy, Marilyn Monroe, Mickey Rooney. But it all devolved into convictions about gambling and horse race fixing and all kinds of crazy stuff. So, I mean, this is a location in the movie that so perfectly fits what's going on. And it is part of the charm of Jackie Brown, just like I think part of the charm of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is its attention to detail and its locations. And last but not least, at least in my heart, it is Special Agent Ray Nicolette's movie. <laughs> it is 
Michael Keaton as Ray Nicolette from the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Agency, who would then go on to also play Ray Nicolette, but he shifted over to the FBI for Soderbergh's Out of Sight. And in this first appearance as Ray Nicolette, Keaton's unique energy, his bouncy enthusiasm for being a cop, his warmth and charm, yes, but also he's winking, he's he's aware of the character's own ridiculousness. One of my favorite scenes involves him just walking down a hallway, wearing a motorcycle jacket, looking around. Hey, hey great, you're here. Yeah. Hey, Jackie, how you doing? Hi. Can I have a word outside with Ray for a minute? Oh, sure. Take right. your time. So they're going to discuss how Jackie wants to make a deal in this case. She wants to make a deal. Oh, yeah? She's yeah. not scared. She almost sounds scared. What she want? She wants to go back to work. Oh, yeah? So what's she going to give us? She hasn't gone into specifics yet. She's been waiting for you to get here. Ah, she knows it's my case, right? Well, she hasn't said it, but she's not stupid. She's she knows it's you who wants her. Let's go. <laughs> it's just... He's got an insouciance. I think that's the word. Sorry to keep you waiting. Now, what can we do for you? I need permission to leave the country so I can keep my job. Huh. We can look into that. I need it tomorrow. If I don't show up for work tomorrow, I'm fired. Well, There's just something about the cr- creaking want. of the leather jacket. I'm working. I can help you. Help us do what, Jackie? Help you get our deal, Roby. So now you do know you never asked if I did or not. Just tell us now that you do know him. And that scene right there, you never asked if I did or not, that's a precursor to so many times to come where Jackie sort of brilliantly turns the tables on these cops for her advantage. She's smarter than they are. She's the one who puts together a whole caper under their noses, by the way, that they don't even realize. And there's a scene later where Keaton has dinner with her in a restaurant that is just so, I think it's also maybe that, I think it's location is, is the cockatoo lounge because it has that same vibe. Just the way he eats with his cutlery and the way that he puts a one sauce on the steak that he's eating on the individual bite. There's just a perfection to it that you have to watch. And I think that you'll understand how amusing I find it and how brilliant it is because I have to do an episode of all the Ray Nicolette Keaton scenes. But maybe kind of like De Niro, like it's hard to play De Niro scenes, although I am going to play one for you. It, it might be hard to capture what's genius about his performance. I want to try and describe it, though, when I can. So maybe I will do an episode that uses this character appearing in two different films by two different filmmakers. And I will talk about the genius of the Ray Nicolette acting that Michael Keaton brings to this role. He's perfect. Tarantino tells an anecdote, which I love, about approaching Keaton. And basically, he's like, this guy's MO is to try to tell me all the reasons why he's not right for the part. <laughs> I don't know if I see it. I don't know if I get it. I don't know. And Tarantino's finally like, it's you, okay? Just do it. He's just like, that's not the process that he wants to engage in. Maybe that's the part of treating movie stars like actors that he's talking about, because I know famously people like Dustin Hoffman or Warren Beatty, they flirt with these roles forever and they create such kind of inadvertent chaos in a way because it holds everything up while filmmakers are waiting to get a star. Well, I think Tarantino was able to 
cut through that and get to the performances that he wanted, which also contain this unexpected poignancy. And more than that, what's awesome is in its treatment of Robert Forster and in Pam Greer particularly, it shows his respect for actors, not just as a thing, as actors, but also actors past the age that Hollywood deems them useful or bankable or worthy. That's not the Tarantino universe. You know, the way that Tarantino is encyclopedic about film, well, he's also pretty damn encyclopedic about music, as evidenced in this soundtrack, and he's also encyclopedic about his awareness of who's capable of doing the things that he needs them to do in these films that he imagines. One of the things I wanted to mention about the Elmore Leonard issue This is the only Tarantino film ever of the nine that he's made. Is it 10 yet? I think he famously said he's going to stop making films after 10. It's the only one he didn't write. Now, he did write it, but it has a source. It has a book as a source. It's the only one of his films that's like that. And I think to me, that's one of the reasons I particularly love Jackie Brown. I think it hems him in just enough. It keeps him pointed within the narrative of the book that he clearly appreciates so much that it eliminates some of the other stuff in Quentin Tarantino films that sometimes gets in the way for me. See that Meerschaum pipe in Inglorious Bastards. I know people love that. That took me right out of that amazing sequence. And I was wrapped. I remember sitting in the theater watching that sequence with the people hidden under the floorboards and the, the utter brilliant tension of that sequence. And then Christopher Waltz pulls out this most cartoonish, ridiculous Meerschaum pipe. It's just, why? Because he was probably really stoned when he wrote that page. I don't know. Anyway, on that critics roundtable that's part of the extras on iTunes, if you watch this movie that way, there's a, as I said, it's sort of unintentionally funny critics roundtable, just because, my God, If you ever aspire to be a film critic, watch this and decide to do something else with your life because God bless them. We need them. People talking about movies intelligently is in short supply. Hell, you're listening to me. If there were smarter people out there, you'd be listening to them. But anyway, one of the best people on this panel, which is moderated by Elvis Mitchell, is Stephanie Zacharek. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Stephanie Zacharek. She's the Time Magazine film critic. She is great. She dropped a few pearls of wisdom in this roundtable where I had to like stop the tape and be like, wait, what? I had to write this down. She said of Elmore Leonard that every Elmore Leonard sentence is like a well-packed suitcase. Brilliant, spot on, absolutely accurate. She also said of the appeal of, or rather, to the question of who does Jackie Brown appeal to in the world of Quentin Tarantino fans, because it's not all of them. She said, quote, it's the quiet favorite of quiet people. Whoa, that's where I had to stop. I was like, wait a minute, what? That is genius. Let's unpack that. And then she kind of tells a story of talking to some Tarantino fans who were like, yeah, didn't really dig it. You know, didn't have the sick violence I was hoping for, et cetera, et cetera. But then talking to someone else, maybe a woman who was like, I, I love Jackie Brown. I really, I really enjoy that movie. It really spoke to me. It's very touching. <laughs> she does this little bit about 
Jackie Brown being the quiet favorite of quiet people. I love that. And she's really good about the movie. If you do watch the, the making of materials, my watch is talking to me. My watch has a point it would like to make about Jackie Brown. Another QT thing that I love in this movie, you know, I said that I'm sort of the last person at dawned on that Quentin Tarantino writes these really long talky sequences and that one of the things that Sally Mankus is the editor of this and, and most all of his other films until she passed away, that they together kind of really figured out this rhythm of Quentin Tarantino dialogue scenes. And you realize watching a movie like this, it's a lot more complicated than you think because you do have to keep things moving. You have to have, you have to have cuts and you have to have different things going on because there is a lot of dialogue. And the dialogue and the acting is brilliant. It's incredible for actors to get the opportunity to do that stuff. But there's some brilliant cuts that I realize are probably there just to break these sequences up. But when I first encountered this one, there's a great one where Max goes back to Jackie's house in the morning after she has stolen his gun. And uh, she is making coffee. And what's so great is that there's just this shot of the opening of the cabinets and her taking two mugs out. And then there's a shot down into an empty coffee mug as like steaming hot black coffee is poured into the mug. Now, I guess in the sequence of the conversation between her and Max, it's used to break it up. But I can also can't help but think that there's another part I heard Tarantino talk about in the making of stuff that he's like obsessed with coffee. Go figure. He's probably like jacked to the eyeballs on like a quintuple espresso or something. But you could just feel the loving appreciation for a steaming cup of coffee that he has in, in that shot, which makes me laugh so much. One of the other things um, I think that Stephanie Zacharik mentioned, and if I'm getting this wrong, I apologize, but she, she, I think, said that it was Tarantino who said he wanted Jackie Brown to be his Howard Hawks movie. Now, I'm ignorant about plenty of things in film. I've always heard the name Howard Hawks, but I don't think I'd ever really seen Howard Hawks films, which is, a, I realize now, after sitting down and watching the one that Tarantino mentions in reference to Jackie Brown. So I watched a film called Rio Bravo, which I think is 1958-1959, John Wayne, Dean Martin, Angie Dickinson, Wallace Beery. I mean, this is not a uh, revisionist Western per se, but it is way ahead of its time. Brilliant film, weird in that good way. It's off kilter. It's not what you expect. I guess to be Hawksian is to usually have two guys in sort of a quasi-romantic friendship, you know, uh, and to also pair them with a strong and sexually confident female lead who upends the tropes of the time by being the aggressor. Now, in Rio Bravo, it's probably the greatest example of that because you have a couple of instances. You have John Wayne and Dean Martin as the two guys who have this friendship and the love that John Wayne has for the Dean Martin character and his struggle with alcoholism and his tough love mechanics for getting him back on his feet are quasi-hawks. Like they are, I'm, I'm sorry, they're like uber-hawksian, turns out. 
And Angie Dickinson is the quintessential Hawksian female protagonist. Well, here in Jackie Brown, you have that too, because you have a couple different pairings. You do have, a, it's a pairing to have Max and Ordell, even though that's a prickly pairing. But those are two guys that sort of bounce off of each other throughout the course of the film. And of course, they have Pam Greer's strong, sexually confident Jackie Brown. There's a scene in the Cockatoo Inn where um, I think it's the first time we see the Cockatoo Inn and it's so brilliant because I'm going to play you the intro here just because it starts with the sign, the Cockatoo Inn and Ordell getting out in this brilliant location again, probably in Hawthorne or Corona and he approaches this ornate wooden door with bricks, and it's the Steadicam shot. And just that song comes on the soundtrack, and as we, we labyrinthine through this brilliant 70s relic. Jackie Jack. Hey. Damn. I'm gonna have to remember this place. It's all right. About two minutes from your crib, 10 minutes from the gig. What's your drink, brother? Uh, let me get a screwdriver, home. Huh? How you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Yes, you are. <laughs> Damn. So it's just, you know, there's Jackie's sexual confidence. She then, you know, Ordell says, you know, you, you probably have to beat him off with a stick in here on a Saturday night. She goes, I do all right. And he goes, you damn sight better than all right, Jackie. You fine. And so that's, Haw this is all Howard Hawk stuff, which I didn't know until I watched Rio Bravo, which is stunning. I put a I put a comment on Instagram to uh, to indicate that I was I the last person to be aware of how phenomenally great Dean Martin could be as an actor because I've never seen him be as good as he was in Rio Bravo. He's a revelation. And Angie Dickinson, 28, 29 year old Angie Dickinson, holy hell, is she brilliant and so ahead of her time. It could be 1969 as far as that film is concerned. So again, this is what I love about Tarantino. He is a living connection to this era, these eras of Hollywood that are largely forgotten by today's filmgoers, but not for him. Like he's the kid who sat in these theaters and saw weird juxtapositions of films that didn't really belong together because the cinema that he was going to in a predominantly black section of Los Angeles, as talked about in his great book, uh, Cinema Speculation, you know, they would put together these films that had no business going together. Like, for instance, they would play Foxy Brown and they would think that Taxi Driver was just like an exploitation film, which fair enough, really. <laughs> like for all its art and artifice, he has a great section in that book where he's like, we didn't experience it that way. We thought we laughed at the violence in Taxi Driver because we thought it was of a piece with the same over the top violence we were seeing in the black exploitation films of the same era. And I guarantee you, he probably saw these Howard Hawks films, Rio Bravo. And he mentions in the making of materials that he wanted this to be like Rio Bravo because he remembers seeing Rio Bravo for the first time, but he also is aware that he's seen Rio Bravo 15 times and he gets something out of it each time. And that's what he wanted Jackie Brown to be. And it is. I've watched it God knows how many times, over 20 times. I watched it four times just for this. And I've probably seen it 20 or 25 times before that, because for me, 
It's one of those movies, if it's on, I'm watching it all the way through. So Hawthorne, Carson, Compton, these locations, the Cockatoo Inn, the Del Amo Fashion Center Mall. It's some of the best use of a mall in cinema. It's so good. And it's good because it's not done winkingly. It's, it gets the mall stuff right if you spent your teenage years in a mall, the way he uses the Del Amo Fashion Center Mall and its parking structure and just the, the music and the, the clothes. It's, it's so, so good. Um, that to me, that's what makes this such a complete cinematic experience. Now, one of the great, <laughs> one of the great scenes for me, I said mentioned before, it's hard to play De Niro scenes, but this dialogue scene between Ordell and De Niro after the money transaction has gone awry, and Lewis shoots Melanie in the parking lot of the Del Amo Fashion Center Mall. I remember being in the theater in 97 when this came out. I remember being so shocked when he shot her because at that point I hadn't read the Elmore Leonard source stuff. It's in the book. As is Ordell's great line. If you had to do it, you had to do it. But at the time, you had no anticipation that he was going to go there. Like these two characters had just been having sex 10 minutes ago. And now she's getting on his last nerve. He won't participate in a ripoff of Ordell that she tries to go manipulate him into. She's picking on him in a brilliant sequence where he can't find the car after the uh, transaction goes down and she's kind of mocking him. He's getting more and more and more De Niro-ly frustrated. Uh, and he finally just pulls it. You don't see it. That's what's brilliant. That's what's great about this for Tarantino, right? In Pulp Fiction, we would have seen it. We would have seen the head explode. We would have seen the, the, the gore. There's no gore. You know, Beaumont gets shot in the beginning. You don't see that. Melanie gets shot here at the end. You don't see that. So that's like the place where Tarantino is reining it in in a way that I think is brilliant. I love this dialogue scene between or Dell and Lewis. Driving over tonight where all them car dealerships is, we're going to leave this heap in the parking lot, pick up the car, the cops don't know nothing about. Where's Melanie? Well, that's, that's what I want to tell you. You see, she was bugging me the whole time. She got pissy with me because I wouldn't let her carry the bag, and then she started running her fucking mouth about, you know, like, because I couldn't remember where the car was parked right away when we came out. So then she got on me about that. Is it this aisle, Lewis? Is it that aisle, Lewis? It's totally fucking with my nerves, man. So what, you left her there? I, I shot her. You shot Melanie? Twice, in the parking lot. You couldn't talk to her? Well, how can you talk to her? You, know, you couldn't she, just hit her? Maybe, but I, at that at that moment, I don't know. I, you shot her twice? Is she dead? I, I, that's pretty much. What do you mean pretty much, Lewis? That ain't no fucking answer, yes or no, is she dead? I, I think so. You think so? Tell me, Lewis, She's is dead. she? She's dead. But where'd you shoot her? In the chest and the stomach. If you had to do it, then you had to do it, right? What we don't want is that bit surviving on. What's incredible is this, this, that whole sequence is one shot. 
it's through the car window, De Niro in the foreground, Samuel Jackson in the background. And it's just one take until that cut right before Ordell says, if you had to do it, you had to do it. So you have in this one scene, in this one shot, comedy, you have the hilarity of seeing De Niro finally (laughs) reduced to this complaining, babbling mess who's litigating a ridiculous argument he had with Melanie in a parking lot where he lost his shit and shot her twice and killed her. It's played for laughs. Then it has this cutaway to Ordell and all of a sudden it's deadly serious. And that's the foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Lewis uh, later on in the scene when Ordell shoots him. And that's just the confidence of the tone. That's the... um, that's the the genius of of how this all comes together for me. By the way, <laughs> I was asking, remember I said before, like De Niro, Keaton are the movie stars. Was Samuel L. Jackson a movie star in the way that he sort of is now with his role in Marvel films and the global box office appeal that those bring someone who fits himself super well into that Marvel universe as he has done. Pulp Fiction, which came out, what, 95 maybe? That was his 30th three zero film, his 30th film. Samuel L. Jackson has been around forever. He is a survivor in the game, which, which ain't nothing in Hollywood, let me tell you that. And as a black man in Hollywood, probably unprecedented, I would say. I mean, you gotta put him in the same category of people like Sidney Poitier, um, you know, Danny Glover, James Earl Jones. Like there's a few guys that have managed to stick around in the business for 50, 60, 70 years. He's one of those people. It's incredible. Apparently when De Niro first got the script from Tarantino, he wanted to play Max Cherry, the Robert Forster part. Understandable. But to his credit, again, there's a monomania, I think, that you have to be aware of with certain directors. He's he's not, you can imagine a lot of people telling him, like, are you crazy? Of course you want Robert De Niro to be the star of your film over Robert Forster. But no, he's got his heart set on Robert Forster. And Robert Forster is so perfect as Max Cherry. I can't even, I can't even describe how perfect he is. He inhabits this role so thoroughly that much like Pam Greer as Jackie Brown, like these are real people to me. You know, I want to know where they are today. I want to, I want to follow up on them. Some other funny casting things, the role of Winston, that's the part I was telling you about that, uh, Ordell brilliantly kind of, uh, Brilliantly, he, he brilliantly diagnoses, um, you know, the relationship between uh, Max Cherry and Winston uh, through looking at these pictures uh, on his on his wall. And this is like the prickly nature of their relationship is so perfectly. Uh, illustrated because, you know, 
again, in that Hawksian sense, you're going to have these two guys in conflict throughout the entire film, and they're going to play a role. That's Winston. He works here. Damn. He's a big one, ain't he? Y'all tight? Yeah. But you was boss, though, right? Yeah. That was your idea to take that picture, too, wasn't it? All right, you want a $10,000 bond? In that inhale, you contain the, the truth that, that Ordell's arrow has found its bullseye. And that's genius, too. There's a bunch of other things I could go on about, but I want to keep this short. I'm just going to say that the end of the film is so perfectly calibrated as, as the beginning of the film is. And again... Poor Max. Knock, knock. <laughs> hey. The poor guy can't go to the can in his own office without being hey, interrupted. You. I got your package. It was fun getting a half million dollars in the mail. Less 10%. Why'd you take so little? It's my fee. This isn't a bail bond, Max. I uh, hesitated taking that much. But you earned it. Well, I'm leaving now and, you know, I'm all packed. This is such a great scene again for its simplicity and what's going on here. Because this is the romance not reaching fruition. But they both feel it and they both will come to regret their parting. But they regret it individually on their own. That's such a great choice to me, you know? You could have the happy ending, they ride off into the sunset together. Listen, the irony is the last week's episode to live and die in LA, one of the female characters is the only sort of surviving member of the criminal enterprise, and she gets away with her new girlfriend in Rick Masters' Ferrari and zips off. Well, in the same way, Jackie Brown gets into Ordell's Mercedes convertible and zips off with his money at the end of this scene and sequence. And again, it's truthful, in the book, there's a lot more detail about her ambivalence towards what she knows to be Max Cherry's interest in her. And that's part of the genius of Elmore Leonard to me is that he really shows human complication in his characters and he, he resists sort of a pat shorthand. And in doing so, he creates great drama between these characters. You know, Max and Jackie do share a kiss before they part. And it's the intimation that there's more there. It's the first time they've ever kissed in the whole movie. And it's the very end. And it's a kiss that says, there's something worth exploring here. But he would have to cross a line that he's not yet comfortable crossing. He's an ex-cop. He's in the law enforcement business. You know, if he gets away, if he absconds with a felon who just stole $500,000 in illegal drug money or, dr or gun running money from the federal government under their very noses, that's, that's a bridge too far for Max. But the way they part and then the genius use of the phone call. Yes, that's a very serious offense. Is your son still in school? You know, he's going back to work here. He's watching her walk away. Could I excuse myself? Would you call me back in about half an hour? Yes, thank you. 
And this is his moment of regret, watching her drive away. And what comes back on the soundtrack? Just like what we, just where we started, bookended with Across 110th Street by Bobby Womack. And then what's brilliant is as he walks down the hall, sad, lonely, but aware that it's kind of how it has to be. The poignancy of this song, of Bobby Womack's emotional delivery, and he's out of focus. And then it cuts right to Pam. And she's driving with this look on her face of kind of a lonely uncertainty. And she goes through a great post of emotions in this lockdown shot. She looks sad. Now she's sort of happy and thinking about it differently. She gets a little bit of a jaunty angle to her neck. But then she gets sad again. And then she starts singing along. Right with the right with the chorus. And what's so great? You can find it all in the street. It goes to black right there. Damn, I got chills just watching that again. Written and directed for the screen by Quentin Tarantino. God, what a masterful film. It's so good. Please watch it. Please reach out and let me know your experience of Jackie Brown. I want to talk more about Jackie Brown. I'm not ready to let the movie go. I want to do something else in this universe of this film. Anyway, thank you, as ever, for listening and supporting the podcast. I really appreciate it. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast.